0: Another episode of the Scrumcast. I'm Derek Neighbors.
1: I'm Roy Vanwater. I'm Clayton Lengelzigic. I'm Jade Meskill.
0: So today, I think we've got a number of topics, but the first one I want to talk about is what do you do as a team member and is a management team or a manager when you've got somebody on your team that clearly does not seem to be fitting in with the team?
1: Kick <laughs> <Get, get> them <laughs> off. So, like kick them Uh, off the island
2: right or or make them vp of special
1: projects or something (laughs) (laughs) there you go hmm uh let's see can uh, is this a self-organizing like mature team or any old average team
0: um i I would say let's go from both angles let's go from a uh, mature team but maybe not fully self-organized meaning that the Participants are not necessarily juvenile in behavior. Um, they're adult in behavior, but maybe they're not uh, fully self-actualized. Um, and then let's go from a more mature approach. Like, well, How would, a, how would a, a mature team approach it?
3: So I think
0: that what,
3: what I have often seen with less mature teams is they'll notice the person not fitting in and not say anything for a while until it kind of becomes more than they can bear. And then they'll go around the person directly to whoever's in charge of them and complain to that person. So, like, if, if Derek is being a jerk all the time, then I'll go to Derek's manager and be like, hey, Derek's being a jerk all the time, can you do something about it? And then the expectation is, is that to protect me, you know, Derek's manager is going to tell him to uh, shut up or whatever. And I think that in a more mature situation, I would approach Derek directly and have a conversation rather than just telling him that he's being annoying or a jerk or whatever. And and in that type of environment, like, Derek may realize that he didn't even know he was coming off that way. And I may not realize that I was being too sensitive to some of the ways that he was saying something or, or something like that. And I think that's how a mature team would solve the problem is directly and head on and not try to. They, they might get a third party involved simply as a mediator to prevent from emotions from becoming too heavy. But they wouldn't get a third party involved as an intermediary.
1: Yeah, I think one interesting – so I think on the kind of immature thing, that you could talk about the, like the five dysfunctions of a team. So maybe they, they're kind of lacking in trust, um, and they have some sense of kind of false harmony. So in that case, it would be the kind of thing where everything's kosher and it's all great, but when this other person's not around, then I'll kind of sort of complain about them. Um, I don't ever really do anything because I think people kind of revert back to the, if you want it done right, do it yourself. So, you know, um, I'm not going to totally kill myself to – to, you know, save the project, but I can pretty much do all the work that I need to do or that needs to get done without involving this person. And, you know, the two of us will just kind of be the heroes on this thing. We'll figure it out. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of a common pattern. And I think also when, when you have a very, um, when we don't feel like a team, you don't feel like you're, uh, really, you know, working with each other for each other. Uh, Then that's when it's easier to get management involved and say, "Well, you know, that's outside, you know, that's above my pay grade. So that's not something I have to worry about. I'm just here to write code uh, or or whatever. Uh, So I'm going to go, you know, kind of tell whoever I think is responsible for that. I'm going to go shove this problem
3: off on them and hope they figure that out." I I also think that on a mature team, uh, diversity breeds innovation, and that person who's dissenting and is, is the least like everybody else and might be the awkward person is somebody who's got a different viewpoint and different experiences and can bring different things to the team that the other team members just aren't capable of doing, and casting them off or writing them off or not involving them in the teamwork, I think it could be a huge mistake. And I've definitely seen cases in which somebody is absolutely poisonous to a team, and I don't know if it's always been irreversibly so, and that is definitely a huge danger, but I do think that every effort should be made to try to incorporate their dissenting viewpoints and their they're, they're just not fitting in this into the team because it could be, and make it an asset rather than something that, that hurts the team.
2: I, I think, you know, it's, it's a very enlightened team that could really start to recognize and tackle this challenge. Uh, and usually it's a team that is still, you know, in the, the Tuckman model, in the, in the forming stage, and they're maybe dipping their toe into the storming and getting scared and kind of backing away from that. And it's, it's a really hard thing to overcome because it's really against most of our human nature to deal with that.
1: Yeah. One thing I think that's interesting though, is um, as the team starts kind of developing some common practices uh, and some kind of baselines for maybe some expectations or a working agreement, um, it makes it a lot easier to have those kind of conflicting moments when you can say, Hey, you know, um, we talked about how quality was really important to us. And, you know, you don't seem very concerned about the build breaking, for instance. And, you know, we all agree that quality is really important. So what can we do about that? And I think it really takes the edge off of the conflict uh, versus if you don't have that kind of precedent, then you're you're kind of talking about, you know, hey, jerk, why did you break the build? Like, you break the build all the time, you know, and maybe we haven't ever talked about why that's important or why we care about that. But if you kind of establish some of those things, that makes it easier to say, hey, I'm not trying to, you know, beat you up personally. I'm just saying I thought we all agreed to this, and it seems like you're violating that. Like, why is that?
3: It also seems like it would be less about me versus you, too, because it's not, hey, I don't like that you're not breaking the build. It's more like we agreed as a team to not break the build. Right. right. You
2: know, there's a lot of there's a lot of studies that show that in, you know, complex adaptive systems or in, in human interactions that you need those simple rules uh to help just kind of maintain civility, right? And and then you can talk about violating those shared rules like you're saying, and not about an individual person and their personality.
0: So I'm kinda of hearing there's kind of a few stages to to this in the sense of it looks like there's Uh, you know, the first team is they're just not aware that the person doesn't fit. And the second one is that they're aware that the team doesn't fit, the person doesn't fit, but they probably badmouth the person behind their back, or they just feel like they don't have trust probably in management to even deal with it. And then the third, which is where most of the teams I see somewhere fit into, are maybe they have some trust in management to the point where they're highlighting to management their concern. I'm concerned about so-and-so where I'm concerned about performance, et cetera. And I think the next one is the team that starts to directly approach each other. And I think the last kind of model is the team that not only directly approaches, but act- actively solves the problem. Right. So it's one thing to say like, Hey, I don't think you're, you know, you're really pissing me off in ABC. It's another thing to say, you know, Hey, how do we get to the point where um, we are including you in the team better? Right. So, um, so with that and kind of sticking with the team, uh, concept. Um, what 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 do you think about... Um, I've seen a lot of uh, organizations that are kind of undergoing change and wanting to go to self-organizing where they've got a team that maybe isn't performing up to par. Um, and they've done command and control and so they try to go to something that's like a hybrid command control. Maybe it's uh, uh, self-organizing with all sorts of kind of reporting structures back or status reporting kind of mechanisms and... They tend to kind of flip flop back and forth between giving the team, you know, full reins or enough rope to hang themselves to completely command and control. And ultimately, they're just afraid that you know, product's not going to be shipped on time or they're not going to be successful. What, what are some um, kind of key triggers that you see in that? And how do you, if you're a manager in that situation, how do you get to the point where you let the team uh, be self-organizing? and still mitigate whatever risk you're kind of concerned with.
2: So, go for it. Uh, I think, again, it comes back to some simple rules of engagement. Uh, You know, if I were to look at that situation that you're talking about, um, I'd say there's probably some lack of trust happening there, Uh, and probably for various different reasons. Either people aren't doing what they say they're going to do, and so then the command and control sneaks back in, um you know, there, there's a lot of reasons that you could see that kind of flip-flopping around and kind of trying to sort of self-organize. And I, I think the, the trick with self-organization is it's kind of an all-in uh, mentality. You, you have to give them the container to self-organize within or else they're really not self-organized. So. And your job as a manager is to figure out what that can look like and at the same time, uh, help your team to not uh, drive off a cliff. And that's a it's a tough balance to find.
3: So I really uh, like a like a blog post that um, was on Jeff Sutherland's blog uh, called the Scrum Shock Treatment, and it was kind of describing a like a way to jump in jump a team into the idea of doing Scrum. And it was very command and control, which is kind of the part I didn't like, but it made sense in this context, which is, uh, I'm going to tell you how Scrum is going to work, and we're going to do strict Scrum, and you guys don't get a say in the matter until these criteria are met, and he had some arbitrary criteria, which I think you, you should probably negotiate for the specific cases, like whenever you have gotten more than 240% of your current velocity or th- things like that. And, um, and then as soon as those criteria are met, then we're going to slowly start to allow you to make more decisions, because I think that's one thing that I've seen a lot, where Um, a team starts doing scrum, but then starts making their own exceptions to the rules before they understand why the rules are there in the first place. And before they can understand why the rules are there in the first place, they have to see those rules in action and see how effective they can be. Like I think, Jade, you pointed out um, earlier that, uh, you know, you were you were coaching a scrum team and you saw them doing the the almost uh, traditional like let's start cutting ceremonies because they produce too much overhead
2: yeah, yeah day one of
3: scrum <laughs> right and then there's the inevitable let's start replacing all of our physical tools with digital ones because that would just make things so much better right and i think that those are the types of things that we really need to get them to try doing the things the right way first and then let them Change their uh, like change things up and make their own decisions.
1: Yeah, I think all the uh, lean Kanban people just collectively face palms at the Scrum shock article. But uh, <laughs> with that said, uh, I think an important thing if you're a manager dealing with uh, self-organizing teams is to really make that clear distinction about self-directing versus self-organizing. I think that's the sort of you know you should never say self-organizing without mentioning self-directing as well. Uh, but it, assuming you can get that. In place where you have some constraints, I think then you can kind of switch into the more uh, the role of rather than being the either the taskmaster or the you know tweaker, or nitpicker person who's just constantly looking for you know what's the you know, whose shoulder can I look over that kind of thing, to be more of the enabler person who's saying you know what are the you know what's my team missing and how can I enable them to be successful? Um, I think that's an important kind of distinction to make, and you know it's a, there's probably some argument to be made for. Uh, letting the team self-organize in you know maybe a certain regard uh, to get going and then as they become more comfortable in that space then it kind of expanding that and i think over the life of the team that box probably gets bigger and bigger and bigger uh, until it gets to a point where the box kind of is no longer important Um, but you know starting out i think you could probably let them self-organize on uh, smaller things first i think with that said though it's hard to, you know, it's probably never a good time to just say, now we're a self-organizing team. You know, there's always some impending release um, or, you know, something that's coming up that's going to, oh, well, we can't do it now. You know, only if, if we waited six months, then it would be the perfect time, you know, and that time never comes. So you really just have to kind of take the leap of faith, I think.
0: So... Uh, kind of continuing with the team theme, uh, I, there was an article that I think we were discussing earlier today about um, uh, you know don't try to hard, hire, hire a Rubius. I think uh, Bob Martin kind of ranted a little bit is don't don't hire a Rubius, just hire a good programmer and they'll come. And then we kind of had some fond memories of you know hire somebody who's not a Rubius, kind of throw them in the pool and then say stop drowning, swim faster. Stop drowning, swim faster. So when building a team. Uh, What are your viewpoints on just hiring quality people opposed to hiring people that are qualified for the job? And how do you integrate them into the team if you don't go either either direction?
2: I think uh, I get asked this question a lot uh, by managers or executives who are looking to build their teams. And what I tell them is that you need to I fall back on the Agile Manifesto, right, that you need to find motivated individuals, um, and some baseline skill set is, of course, part of hiring someone. They have to have some basic skills uh, that would allow them to be a contributing member of the team. Uh, Does that mean that they have to have the exact skill set that you're looking for? No. You want to hire motivated, smart people that will adapt to whatever tools whatever situation that they're in and do a quality job and so you know i tell them to look for attitude and aptitude that those are kind of the foundational things that if you're if you're looking for a scrum master don't just hire someone because they say they are a scrum master but find the person who has that right personality uh, to perform the the duties and the the hard role of being a servant leader uh, versus somebody who just wants to tell everyone what to do, but they happen to be a certified Scrum Master.
3: And I think uh, Porsche has a, a great. I think they their hiring motto is a higher attitude, trained skill. And yep. I and I like the approach of doing that because I think we find a lot that um, that people who are experts in their field tend to almost have a prima donna type. Nature to them, like he, it, the Ruby community, especially, is famous for this, which is which is what Bob Martin is ranting about. But I mean, I I'm sure that the same carries over to to the Java world and to the .NET world and to every other world as well, where. If you get the guy who's the expert, he's gonna demand special privileges above and beyond the rest of the team, and he needs to have a lead in front of his title, and he needs to get a higher paycheck, and and all of that stuff. And and really, what that builds is a is a guy who doesn't want to work from the team because he's above the team. And I mean, usually,
2: usually for me, the warning sign on, on that is when someone defines themselves as "I am a de blah," right? I am a ruby programmer. I am a .NET developer. That to me shows a very fixed mindset Uh, of
1: that person i think you meant to say ruby ninja jade i saw that by saying i am a god
0: (laughs) yeah i think uh
1: it's kind of interesting though uh you know if you're a hiring manager and you're saying you know we need more people on this team and we need more qualified people and they always want the people that are experts you know we're we're trying to find people that know this technology like the back of their hand and i think it's kind of like you know it's a trick question right uh at that point you're elevating the tools and the technology over the people that you're actually hiring Um, and I think if people if you were to ask those people hey look back in your career and think of all the great people that you've worked with um, I doubt they would say like I worked with this guy and he was so awesome because he knew uh, the entire you know Whatever you know, he could recite any Java method, and he knew all the classes or like you know some nitty gritty technical detail. It's never anything like that. It's people that they enjoyed working with, and they uh, collaborated well with, and they were able to produce great things, and you know they were a friend basically. Uh, and so I think it's kind of a the wrong question to be asking. You know, you don't want to be hiring the perfect technical person. You you know you want to be hiring people that uh, you know for the long term would be good people to work with, uh, even though. Maybe they don't have the exact skill set right now.
3: So the only problem I see with hiring uh, good people rather than experts is it makes it very difficult from an HR standpoint where you have an HR department and they are responsible for looking for your candidates and uh, they need, like, a checklist of stuff to check off before they can get the right person, right? And if your baseline, like you had mentioned, Jade, is too low, then you're going to get an influx of way too many candidates to go through, which makes it very difficult to single out the really good ones that you want. And I don't think I really have a good solution for that where, where you can narrow a stack down because I, I think a resume is such a, a really poor way to, to see what somebody is like. Yeah. That that I almost like don't want to see it as part of the hiring process. But how do you go through 100 candidates and find the one guy who's really going to make your team shine?
0: Yeah, and yep. I mean, I think this is a big a big push right now is, you know, I mean, I think that uh, kind of going back to what you were talking about, Clato, is the world is changing so fast. Uh, Ruby might be hot and popular now. But in three years, Ruby might not even be a viable language, and so you know if you, you know I don't know too many people that are looking for studly COBOL programmers, right? And mm-hmm. and that loop has gone from a ten or fifteen-year arc to a five-year arc in technology, uh, right? And so if you really kind of go with that attitude, aptitude, ability. To me, attitude certainly important, but aptitude is the thing that I think HR department should be, look, should be looking at, which is h- how do we figure out whether somebody is capable of learning new things? Because the world is going to change significantly during their employment here. How do we make sure that they continue well, to the, grow?
2: And that requires a very different way of hiring. And so, uh, you know, to, to talk to Roy's point is yes, this is a problem for HR, but the problem is because of the the pre-existing practices that we have and the way that we're doing things currently are not adaptable for the new world that we're entering. And so this this causes systemic change throughout the organization. If you want to hire the best people, you have to find the way to identify the best people. And doing it through a resume is not going to work.
0: So with that, we're out of time, but I want to add that if you are an HR person or an organization that is currently undergoing an ad transformation and has an HR department are dealing with some of these issues, we'd love to have you on a future episode of the Scrumcast. You can uh, get a hold of us at IntegrumTech.com forward slash Scrumcast, and we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Thank you.